Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Synapse, a podcast brought to you by Nature Careers in partnership with Nature Neuroscience. I'm Jean-Mary Zarate, a senior editor at the journal Nature Neuroscience, and in this series, we speak to brain scientists all over the world about their life, their research, their collaborations, and the impact of their work. In episode four, we delve into gender differences and meet a researcher who spent her career both discovering and debunking theories about the male and female brain. My name is Gina Rippon, and I'm Professor Emeritus of Cognitive Neuroimaging uh, at Aston University uh, in Birmingham. And I'm a cognitive neuroscientist by trade, and I, um, I use a lot of brain imaging techniques to try and discover the relationship between the way in which the brain is working and unusual behaviour. So I'm very interested in developmental disorders such as autism. And I'm also interested in in how brains get to be different. So not how all brains are the same, but really what makes uh, different people behave differently. And as a consequence of that, almost invariably, once you start talking about brain differences, you get drawn into the issue of whether or not there is such a thing as a male brain and a female brain. Spending some time reviewing the research evidence for the notion that there is such a thing as a female brain or such a thing as a male brain, I discovered that actually this well-established belief that there are two different kinds of brains doesn't have a lot of sound research behind it. So I got drawn into the whole issue of where differences come from in terms of if we look at gender gaps in the world, for example, And if there's no evidence that there is such a thing as a male brain or a female brain, where do these differences come from? And it linked with the work that I've been doing, a sort of 21st century approach to the brain, new findings about how the brain works and how the brain interacts with the outside world and how the outside world has much more of a profound impression on the brain than we ever realised. And... I started looking at the influences in the outside world, which might have led to the differences we see in gender gaps, for example, and what people believe, uh, you know, well-established differences between males and females. So the book got to be called The Gendered Brain, because it was really the idea that if there are gendered influences in the outside world, and I would suggest that there are, (laughs) 
then these would have differential effects on developing brains. And it is those gendered influences that I think we should be paying a lot of attention to in trying to understand gender gaps, rather than assuming that these gender gaps have come from some essential, in the biological sense of the word, uh, difference between males and females. You know, I've always apparently been really fascinated by the brain, um, even obviously before I really knew what it was. I'd obviously somehow got hold of the idea of this particular part of the body, which was very important. And there are stories that I used to trepan my teddy bears to see if they had brains. Um, as I say, I'm not sure this isn't a family myth, but somehow I thought the brain is really interesting and, and that's what I want to do with my life. Uh, I was originally going to do medicine, uh, but for various reasons, I, I kind of got diverted into doing psychology. But it was the kind of psychology which um, at that point was was the beginnings of neuroscience when I was interested in any uh, aspect of, of behaviour which had some kind of biological underpinnings and what the research was associated with that. So that's how I got into, into neuroscience. And my early interest in um, male and female brains, I have to confess, is because I was firm, you know, I was firmly signed up to the idea that there were differences between male and female brains. And in terms of, of other myths, um, which have hopefully been uh, dismissed, I was very interested in the idea that the right and the left hand side of the brain were responsible for different functions in human behaviour. So I was a paid up member of, of the male female brain brigade. And when I was setting up a new lab at the University of Warwick, which is which is where I, I first went to work, that was the basis of my research agenda. I, I wanted to find tasks that would reliably differentiate between males and females and show nice clear differences between male and female brains that I could then apply to the questions I was interested in. And it took me several years and a, a long struggle to realise that I was just not finding the kind of differences I expected. So I went and had a, a more thorough look at the research that was behind this and realised that it actually wasn't very good research. A lot of it was based on straightforward assumption. There was never a question of, you know, do you have a male brain or a female brain? It was a kind of given. And from the end of the 18th century onwards, that the hunt the difference agenda really informed what neuroscientists, um, what we now call neuroscientists, were doing at the time, and also experimental psychologists who were sort of weighing in with devising a, a go-to list of of what males, how you know, the male way of doing things or the female way of doing things. So once I reviewed that, I have to confess I sort of backed away from it and thought this isn't an interesting question to be asking. Uh, it might be interesting to ponder about, but in terms of my research activities, I, I should move away from this, um, which is what I did. And I, I got much more involved in uh, other areas of interest, such as uh, dyslexia and, and autism. Then when I moved to Aston in, in the year 2000, um, I uh, became much more involved in the new, newly emerging brain imaging techniques. Been around for about 10 years, but there was a whole new system at Aston. So much more involved in, in different ways of looking at the brain. And at the same time, I was asked to review what neuroscience was contributing to, to the big issues of the time. 
And one of the areas I looked at was sex differences. Uh, There was a lot of debate at the time about uh, the relationship between male and female behaviour. And there were books such as Simon Baron Cohen's The Essential Difference, which suggested that there was some kind of biologically determined difference between male and female brains. And and that would determine the roles, the kind of behaviour that they showed and, and the roles that they would have in society. So I went back and had a look at the work that I'd looked at earlier and looked to see how the new neuroimaging techniques um, were being used in this debate and was horrified to say that they were being used even more firmly to uh, pursue this hunt the difference agenda. And all the early work was looking for differences in males and female brains. And whenever one was found, you know, that became published and, and became a lot of interest in in, in, um, in the mainstream press, for example, because brain imaging, certainly the beginning of this century in the 2000, 2010 or 12, um, was a source of great fascination uh, to people. And there were all sorts of publications linking the findings of, of neuroscience with these wonderfully colour-coded images which were being um, hijacked to some extent by um, perhaps a sort of self-help gurus. So a lot of work in the sort of men are from Mars, women are from Venus genre were, were hijacking some of the images. And I became very concerned about what it was being claimed on, on the behalf of the neuroscience community, as did the neuroscience community itself. So there was actually, uh, a, you know, a big move within neuroscience to say we need to make sure that people understand what we're really showing and that it's not this nice, what looks like clear-cut window onto a real-time brain working and to make sure that people don't draw the wrong conclusions from it. So a very long story was how I got drawn back into looking at male and female brains, but more in terms of a kind of critical neuroscience perspective. Um, And so that's how I got into this. Certainly one of the areas um, that I addressed when I was researching for the book, in fact, was looking at the development of of gendered behaviour in very, very young children. Um, Again, one of the things we've learned with the advent of new brain imaging techniques is that very tiny babies are what I've called tiny social sponges. You know, we always used to think that babies were pretty incompetent uh, because generally cognitively they are um, and physically they are when they arrive. And so we kind of assumed that applied to everything that a baby could do. But we now know that babies arrive with finely tuned social radar in the world and maybe even their social radar is picking up differences beforehand. So from a very early age, you know, within hours of birth, children are responding differently to the sound of their native language, sight of a, a face, a human face, etc. And very quickly, they're starting to differentiate uh, the face of a carer from other faces um, and, and different kinds of sounds uh, within their, their language structure. So they're picking up differences very early, but we now know they also pick up the values attributed to those differences. So within the first 18 months, two years of life, um, boys and girls are picking up that they are a particular person like this. And these are the kind of toys they're given to play with. And this means that they are going to be good and enjoy with these kind of skills. Another Children are being in different kinds of toys and, and, and um, they are picking up a message that these are the kind of toys and skills, um, you know, training opportunities that toys are offering um, that, that they will be expected to play with. And, and we have 
what I've called, um, or other researchers have called, junior gender detectives. And, and children are very fierce gender detectives. They very early on develop an idea, this is what boys do, this is what girls do. And, um, you know, the arguments around the dressing up box in nursery schools, for example, are, are quite fierce. You know, girls will say, boys like, you know, don't wear crowns and tiaras and dresses, etc. So this starts very early, which of course means that if we're trying, you know, as adults to, to address some of the kind of issues, gender gaps that we're interested in, we're having to unpack a lot of both brain and behaviour conditioning, which has been going on from, from day one. Um, and it is possible to show how boys and girls will respond differently to different gendered opportunities. So you can, for example, um, make neutral objects, you can paint them pink or blue, uh, and see who decides it's their kind of toy to play with. Um, and message pink seems to give girls permission much more powerfully. So they'll be much more likely to play with a garlic press or a melon baller, for example, if it's painted pink. So there is some kind of already gendered bias in there with respect to how well different individuals respond to socialisation, etc. And we get to girls of six or, or even younger who won't play with um, games who, which have been des uh, described as being for really, really clever people because they don't think they're really, really clever. So they will play with toys which are or games which are devised for children who work really, really hard. And we've got a nine-year-old and younger girl. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I was saying that maths is a boy thing, and so when I grow up, I won't be a mathematician um, because that's what boys do. And we can monitor some of that at um, at the brain level as well. So uh, that's, you know, that's 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 a key issue. We have to realise this is this is around us all the time. And, and these tiny little social radars are, are, are twitching all the time. Another sort of concept that has emerged in the 21st century, that our brain is, is not just uh, something that's useful for individuals and understanding how uh, humans are successful because they've acquired amazing cognitive skills like language and creativity and scientific ability, etc. It's also the fact that we humans are intensely social beings. And there is a, a model that, in fact, the success of the human race is much more to do with the fact that we solve problems collaboratively. Um, we start to understand social norms. We can understand other people. So we don't just have a sense of self. We also have a sense of other people. And that means we can understand what other people might know, how they might behave, what they might be thinking about us and what they might expect of us. And we generate social scripts associated with that. So we're constantly, as we did with the three Ps, we're saying, well, you know, who am I? What kind of person am I? How do I fit into the outside world? You know, what is my tribe, if you like? So our brains are constantly monitoring the social environment. 
And the work that some of the work that we've been doing in the lab is actually looking at the consequences, the, the brain level consequences of, of, of social experience. And when I put together some of the tasks that I've been using and that other people working in this area have been using, I, I start to think that we're actually quite an unpleasant bunch because what we tend to do is put people in the scanner and try and make themselves feel bad about themselves in terms of what kind of social information they're getting from outside. So, for example, you can put somebody in the scanner and say, um, I'd like you to envisage this particular situation. You've just received your fifth rejection letter in the post for a job that you were interested in. I'd like you really to um, think about what that should be telling you about yourself. So I'd like you to take a self-critical view. Um, how do you feel about this rejection? Do you think this means that you're underskilled or that you're being over-optimistic in terms of, of your own self-view? Other ones you can do is to uh, get somebody involved in a game within a scanner. Uh, and there's a, a, a task called the cyberball task where you show somebody a sort of cartoon-like image of, of, of a video and say, OK, here's a couple of cartoon characters throwing the ball to each other. They're having a great time, clearly enjoying um, playing this game. Now your image is going to pop up in this video and they'll start throwing the ball to you and this is how you control it, etc. So you get this person involved in having this game with, with somebody else and then all of a sudden these other two characters start rejecting you, ignoring you and they have been playing with you and all of a sudden they've stopped playing with you. Um, and whatever you do, you're given various tasks to uh, attract their attention. They ignore you completely. And at the same time, people like me will be saying, so I'd now like you to tick this self-esteem box, you know, how do you feel now at this point of the game? And even, and I've you know been in the scanner and done this game, even though you know it's a game, you do start to feel um, a bit miffed and your social esteem, your, your self-esteem score does go down. Uh, another very, uh, not this is not one of my tasks, a Tinder type task where you ask somebody to rate images of people they'd like to meet. And then you say, well, I'm now going to show you the ratings of the people that you said you'd like to meet, how they rated you. And of course, it's been rigged so that the ones you said you'd like to meet generally um, uh, say this isn't somebody I'd really like to meet, etc. So so if, effectively, you're giving people negative social experiences and their self-esteem plummets. And you can see how particular areas of the brain are activated. And the areas of the brain that are activated are, as one might expect, the emotional control centres, but also the frontal areas, you know, they're, they're monitoring, self-reflecting on what this tells me about myself in terms of I'm being rejected or people don't like me or whatever. But there's another part of the brain which bridges these two. It's called the anterior cingulate cortex. And I sometimes characterise it as a bit like a traffic light system or a, a railway point system where it's monitoring the information that's being received by the frontal cortex and the emotional coding that's being applied to this social experience that you're having. And if it's a negative social experience, it's much more likely that the, the red traffic light will be activated. It's a very powerful inhibitory force. So we'll stop the kind of behaviours that might have been consequent on this kind of social experience in, in real life. So you've got what I've called the inner limiter, which is effectively saying, last time you encountered an experience like this, it wasn't great for you. So um, in sat-nav terms, if you like, do a U-term when necessary. So what we're now being able to look at is 
the consequences of the outside world in terms of socialization norms, if you like, or expectations, the, you know, what I call the people like you factor, where people like you are good at these kind of things, that'll make you feel good. People like you try and do these kind of things, don't do very well, that'll make you feel bad. So we're starting to get an idea, starting to put um, uh, brain imaging data, if you like, on this kind of framework of, of the outside in model. One of the areas uh, that this model can be applied to is a particular campaign of mine, and that is the underrepresentation of girls and women in science and looking at the non-closing gender gap in this area over, uh, actually over many years. Uh, and one of the areas that I've been interested in is the claim that uh, if you look at allegedly the most gender equal countries, depending on, for example, measures that the World Economic Forum take every year. So think of Scandinavia and Iceland, etc. In those allegedly gender equal countries, there is proportionally a much larger underrepresentation of women in science. So this is known as the gender equality paradox, the idea that, you know, you level the playing field. And I use that term advisedly because that's how it's been interpreted. You've got a nice level playing field for people in science, males and females, and yet women are turning away from science or they're choosing not to do science, etc. And this is nothing to do with competence because the measures they take indicate that uh, the, the males and females are scoring equally well on, on the kind of entrance exams that they might be needed. And we're looking at the um, advent of a newer, what I call new essentialist argument, Whereas moving away from the competence argument saying women haven't got the right kind of brains, they're starting to say uh, women um, have biologically determined preferences. Uh, and this is where we get the kind of people versus things choice uh, emerging. And that's why they're choosing not to do science. So the idea is that, um, as I say, there is a level playing field and yet women are somehow not becoming represented in science. My counter to that is the idea of the outside-in model and saying just how level is the playing field. If we know that negative social experiences will change the brains of anybody who encounters those in quite dramatic ways, very often in terms of inhibition. So we see that if those areas of the brain that I was talking about earlier are activated, they're associated with people with very poor self-image, um, people who talk about imposter syndrome, they feel that even if they're successful, you know, it's only due to luck. Um, people who have very high levels of self-criticism, which, of course, was something we were deliberately manipulating in the scanner. And, and people who tend to uh, withdraw from situations if, if they feel they're likely to encounter a negative experience. So I think we've got a model here of a better explanation or certainly an explanation that should be looked at in terms of cultural expectations. So it's not that there's something about the individual which is turning them away from science. It's something about the culture, which is when an individual looks at that culture, will they be getting messages, are there people like me in those sciences? So if you, you know, look at role models, for example, and you're looking at physics or uh, robotics or computer science, very unlikely that you'll see many people like you. 
And you can also track all sorts of measures of success or the reward systems or the promotion systems in different organisations and find quite clear evidence of, of gender gaps. So people who are trying to look at diversity and inclusion initiatives within organisations really need to be aware that the diversity aspect isn't enough. It's the inclusion aspect which is really important because our brains are wired to make us social. So if we're feeling that we're approaching an organisation where we're not going to be included, we're not going to be rewarded, we may be constantly bombarded with, with what might be called banter about what people like you can and can't do, then it's much more likely that these people withdraw from that situation. They, they will not choose it. So I, I, I think that that's an area where this is a kind of real life use of this model, which I think science should be looking at. Now that's it for this episode of Tales from the Synapse. I'm Jean-Marie Zarate, a senior editor at Nature Neuroscience. The producer was Dom Byrne. Thanks again to Professor Gina Rippin, and thank you for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.